We're in the book of James. Theme of James is real Christianity, the lifestyle and convictions of a biblical Christian. The very first part of James, the first 18 verses, talks about what a Christian does as it relates to trouble. Trials, you leverage. You're trained through trials. Real Christianity deals with difficulty differently if an external difficulty, trials that you encounter, they are leveraged if you're a Christian. They are leveraged to train you to become more like Christ. Trouble is designed by a good God to do good things in hard places. That's how you think about it, and you cooperate with the king of everything in order to accomplish it. Trouble from the outside is embraced as a tool of grace, as a means of training you and improving you for the glory of God. Secondly, there's a second kind of trouble, not external that you run into, but internal temptation that comes from within. What does a real Christian do? What's the lifestyle and conviction of a biblical Christian? Well, you're trained in trouble and you triumph over temptation. You're victorious. It's not whether you will be tempted. If you're framed in flesh, remember what temptation is. Temptation is the enticement. It's a, it's a natural, normal, human longing that you are enticed to satisfy in an illegitimate way. Everyone is tempted, says James. No exceptions, no exclusions. Not from God, but when he is drawn away, driven out by his hunger, and enticed, deceived, as by a lure. Everyone is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust, his own desire, epithumia, strong longings, human natural longings you seek to satisfy, drawn out to find fulfillment, Opportunity comes, it's illegitimate. It's not prescribed by God, it doesn't honor God, and it's destructive to you. The lore is, this can meet my need. The problem is, it doesn't. It's a temptation, it's an enticement. It's an option, a real option, that can't really satisfy. And so drawn out of our own hunger, like a fish out of those reeds along the bank of the lake or river, we search for food because hungry people eat. You will eat. It's not a matter of if you will eat, it's what you eat. So drawn away out of the safety and the protection of that safe spot, your hunger draws you out, you're enticed as by a lure, Satisfaction looks like it's there. The problem is there's a what? There's a hook. And when that opportunity conceives, your will united with that opportunity, that deception, you make a decision, and that decision to partake in an illegitimate way to fulfill a legitimate need brings forth what? Do you remember? Death. All sin produces death. The severity, the consequences may vary in terms of intensity, but all sin produces separation from God. All of it. Fellowship is broken. Communion is exchanged or forfeited. The life of God is quenched because the Spirit of God is grieved. Should you stay in your sin... Or if it's a certain kind of choice, it can be catastrophically destructive. So triumphing over temptation is crucial for a real Christian. And listen, when Daniel was declared by the angelic visitor, you're a man highly esteemed in heaven. Why do you suppose that is? Because in a culture where he could have had legitimate needs and longings met in illegitimate ways. He said, no, I'll not be defiled by the king's food. No, I'm not going to eat that. When he could have stopped praying 
stopped worshiping the living God. Instead, he threw his windows open and he prayed to the God of heaven, even though he had been commanded not to. He prayed anyway. I think Daniel was clearly highly esteemed because the temptation, the enticement to deal with his reality, he chose God's way, not his own way. And that brought glory to God and honor to him. When you triumph over temptation, it brings glory to God. And it brings honor to you before God. That's a worthy pursuit. Can you say amen to that? All right, so how do you triumph? This is not original with me. I'm passing on John Owen's pathway to dealing with temptation and sin. I'm going to teach the text as I understand it, but the principle is, John Owen would say, the first strategic step in triumphing over temptation is what he calls observation. Evaluation. You seek to understand the pattern, the path, the wiles, the challenges that the enemy has put before you or the flesh has challenged you with so you can understand how temptation works and you can defeat it because you have assessed it, you've evaluated it, you've observed. To that end, we're in Proverbs chapter 7, and we're going to finish this passage today. This is my, I think, third installment out of Proverbs 7. And this is observation. This is how temptation works. John Owen, you seek to understand the wiles, the means that the enemy employs or the flesh takes by way of pathways to create challenges for you in your journey to be what God wants you to be. And this is the most vivid biblical illustration I'm aware of. Inspired by God, we begin in verse 6. A father to a son, Proverbs chapter 7, the ingredients to moral failure. Fumbling the ball as it relates to temptation. Verse 6, this is the wise father illustrating for the need to be wise son, illustrating how good people do bad things. Verse 6, for at the window of my house, I looked out through my lattice and I saw. Now, I highlighted for you last time, this is what wisdom does that a lack of wisdom does not do, and that is they learn lessons from life. They learn lessons from others. The chief ingredient housed in verse 6 is not looking out through the lattice of your life and learning from the experiences of others. The contributing ingredient to moral failure is no observation. This is observation. I looked and I saw. I didn't learn it the hard way. I learned it by watching someone else learn it the hard way. The chief ingredient that contributes to moral compromise and failure, I want to use this word, not harshly, but candidly, it's ignorance. You just don't learn from others. So the question you want to ask is, am I ignoring or am I learning as it relates to the life patterns of others? Look, listen, and learn. Number two, verse seven, I saw among the naive, I discerned among the youths. So the wise father says, this is what I saw. I saw a certain kind of person. I saw among the naive, I discerned among the youths, a young man lacking sense. Two key words, naive. Naive means open door. So the issue is not ignorance, but openness. Moral immaturity. They're seducible. They have no resolved convictions. Naive means not that I have, I'm ignorant or stupid. I just haven't made up my mind. I am an open door. I have not resolved by way of certain convictions. That kind of person, that's who I saw. He lacks sense. That's moral compass. No convictions, no guidance. That's what I saw. So if you're going to say, how does it work? Well, it works when people have not established or cultivated non-negotiable moral convictions. If you haven't established moral convictions, you're naive. Therefore, you're morally seducible. You're open so that at the crossroad decision, 
you are vulnerable to making the wrong call. Listen to me. You need to decide in advance what you will do and won't do. Because when you get to the moment, that is not the time to decide. You are the least likely to succeed if you don't have moral clarity going into challenging, enticing opportunities. So you could say openness and ignorance contribute to this young man's failure. And where I left you last week, verse 8, this is the drawn. Remember, every is a desire. That desire, this is James 1, he's, he has a desire, he's hungry, he's hungry obviously for intimacy or some form of gratification, verse 8, and it draws him out. Passing through the street, verse 8, near her corner, he takes the way to her house. This is not openness, this is foolishness. This is a hungry man drawn out looking for satisfaction. I said to you last week, it is flirting with fire. Why do good people do bad things? They put themselves in the least likely to succeed situations. He is passing through the street near her corner. Proverbs 5 verse 8 says, keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. If you want to triumph over temptation, you need to stay as far away as you can stay, not get as close as you can get. You do not flirt with fire. You flee from fire. I want to read you one of my favorite quotes. This is Charles Spurgeon. He says this, in contending with certain sins, there remains no mode of victory but by flight. He who would be safe from acts of evil, must haste away from occasions of it. A covenant must be made with our eyes, not even to look upon the cause of temptation, for such sins only need a spark to begin with, and a blaze follows in an instant. Now listen to this statement. This is just pure, common, spiritual sense. Who would wantonly enter the leper's prison and sleep amid its horrible corruption? He who desires to be leprous himself would court this contagion. Do you see the idea? If you don't want leprosy, stay away from those who have it. He goes on to say, this day I may be exposed to great peril, but let me have the serpent's wisdom to keep out of it and avoid it. The wings of a dove may be of more use to me today than the jaws of a lion. It is true I may be an apparent loser by declining certain company, but I'd better leave my cloak than lose my character. It is not needful that I should be rich, but it is imperative upon me to be pure. And one last statement, worthy of your consideration. The devil I am to resist, and he will flee from me. But the passions of the flesh, I must flee, or they will surely overcome me. Why do good people do bad things? Because nobody ever sets out to self-destruct, but they do. Why do they? They put themselves in destructive situations not constructive situations. I had a ministry associate in Birmingham. He was the regional director for a missions agency. Good guy, good family. He's traveling to South Central Europe to meet with missionaries and serve them as periodically he would do. His plane connected out of Amsterdam to South Central Europe. Plane had a problem, was required to set at the uh, gate for a number of hours, and so his, the people on that plane were released to get off the plane for eight hours before they would be able to return. So he had not been to Amsterdam, so he decided he would explore Amsterdam. Does anybody know what Amsterdam is known for? Yeah, it's known for the red light district, where you window shop for the wrong kinds of things. 
So he's touring a very beautiful city, and there was this section of the city that he had heard about, had never seen, so curiosity prompted him to see if it was as he had been told. What would you call that? Flirting with fire. What you would call that is foolish. So that day, he made that choice, and he made other choices that followed that bad choice which resulted in a phone call to me from this missions regional director and his wife as they sat alongside of I-65 South, 10 miles south of Birmingham. He called me as his pastor. I could not understand what he was saying because he had just communicated to his wife what he had chosen to do. I could not hear him because he couldn't talk, and I couldn't hear him because she was wailing so loud. He couldn't drive. So I got in my car, drove to where they were, picked them up, carried them to my home, and for the next several hours, we dealt with some of the most painful consequences, uh, death-like consequences, drawn, enticed, deceived, disobeying destruction. All because I put myself in a position most likely to not succeed. Flirting with fire is foolish. Here's the question you need to ask. Oh, and by the way, God graciously intervened in that family. Preserve that marriage transformed his heart. Today, they have a ministry called Christian Marriages in Crisis. The not good God was able to leverage, as he sometimes does, the failure as a means to helping others prevent failure. Do you know what sits at the top of the prescription list? Don't flirt with fire. You'll get burned. Flee it. Don't play with it. So here's the question you need to ask yourself. Am I avoiding or am I flirting? Number number four, verse nine. I want you to see another. This is observation. This is the setup to failure. This guy's going to fail. He fails because of ignorance. He doesn't learn from others. He fails because of a lack of conviction, moral immaturity, openness. He fails because of foolishness. And he also fails because of darkness. Look at verse 9. In the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, in the darkness. Do you see the, the triad of emphasis? It's dusk, it's dark, and the word middle is the pupil of the night. It's the darkest part of the night. He goes from the shadows to the black of midnight. Listen to what Job says of the adulterer. The eye of the, this is Job 24, 15, the eye of the adulterer watches for dusk. He thinks no eye will see me. Why do good people do bad things? They are deceived by the darkness. The darkness which would suggest no one will see me. I can get away with this. There is no implied accountability because it's dark. The darkness isolates. The darkness deceives. We'll turn over to Proverbs chapter 5, verse 21. Listen, if there's cameras, if you know that you are being watched by a camera, are you inclined to do things you shouldn't do? No. Because housed in the camera is the perception Somebody's watching. The lie of temptation is nobody's watching. 
No one will see. Look at Proverbs chapter 5, verse 21. For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord. Fact. Someone always sees. He watches all his paths. Verse 21. Is it possible for it to be so dark that the one that matters the most cannot see? Not possible. Secondly, it's rarely true that no one will not see. It's highly probable that in the providence of God, what you sow in secret will be revealed in public. And you need to function with the recognition that the darkness deceives you into thinking no one will know. Listen, the darkness isolates you. Isolation is not your friend. Accountability is the friend of integrity. Turn the lights on. Be transparent. Let people know where you are. If you have a computer, have someone review it. Some of you may use Covenant Eyes. There are other tools, software tools that will help you be accountable. In my ministry life, we had tech people to look at my iPad, my phone, my computer monthly. What are the chances that you're going to go places on your computer you shouldn't go if someone is looking? I would argue no chance. Accountability is the friend of integrity. The darkness deceives and the darkness isolates. Take the isolation away. Invite accountability. Turn the lights on. Let people know where you are. Let them know what you're doing. Make yourself accountable. And I want to say one final thing about darkness. The darkness not only isolates, the darkness escalates. The darkness escalates because the enemy is the prince of darkness. Evil and temptation, I believe, increase and intensify at night. How many of you have been to a day club? They're nightclubs. Listen to Romans 13, 13. Let us behave properly as in the day. John just preached this a few weeks ago. We are day people. This person, this guy is about to meet is a woman of the night. Let us behave properly as in the day, not carousing not with carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, because those things go with darkness. Why do good people do bad things? They're deceived by the darkness. They think no one will know. If I've said this to you, hear it again. There's an app that's free on your phone. If you have a smartphone, it's called Life 360. I have no association with the app people. I don't make any money for saying this. It's not part of my retirement plan or anything like that. Life 360 is a free app you can download on your smartphone, and you can give permission to people that you want to know where you are at any time, as long as your phone is with you and on. So when I'm traveling, there are people, my wife knows where I am. She can just say, where's Harry? And she can look and see, and wherever I am, my phone is talking to that app, and she can zoom zoom in right down to the building I'm standing in. I can tell you where my mother is. She lives in Brooksville, Florida. If I took the time today, I could tell you where she's at. I have accountability with the vice president of development and his family. So Luke always knows where I am, and I always know where he is because he's traveling. Accountability is the friend of integrity. Listen to this. Good people do bad things, isolate themselves. When you find somebody who's not willing to be accountable, they are vulnerable. Open your eyes with those who you will engage to help you be accountable. I I would put it this way, always arrange for accountability. 
So here's the question to ask yourself. Are you exposing or are you hiding? I mean, exposing where I am, what I'm doing, making yourself accountable. All right, next verse, Proverbs chapter 7. Why do good people do bad things? Listen to this. They do not anticipate the aggressiveness, the availability, and the appeal of immorality. They do not anticipate the aggressiveness, the availability, and the appeal of sin. So remember James. I'm hungry. There's a desire, legitimate longing. The fact that this guy wants a relationship is not illegitimate. What is illegitimate is the means that he is employing to satisfy that desire. So he's hungry. He has a desire. It draws him out. He takes the way near her. What happens next? He's enticed. There's a deceptive lure, the enticement, that provides the promise of satisfaction. It's illegitimate. Verse 10, behold, a woman comes to meet him. Do you see comes to meet him? I'm calling that aggressive. She's coming to him. Dressed as a harlot, cunning of heart. She's boisterous. She's rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. That's available. She is now in the streets, now in the squares. She lurks by what? Every corner. Available, everywhere. Verse 13, she seizes him. That's aggressive. She kisses him. That's aggressive. With her brazen face, she says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I've paid my vows. Verse 15, therefore I have come out to meet you. Do you see the proactivity? Do you see the pursuit? I have come out to meet you to seek your presence earnestly. And I found you. I've spread my couch with Coverings, that's linen, finery, colored linens of Egypt. I've sprinkled my bed with aloes and cinnamon, that's fragrances. Come, let us fill, drink our fill of love until morning. Fun, frolic, let us delight ourselves with caresses. It's all free, verse 19, no accountability. The man, that's her husband, is not at home. She's gone on a long journey He has gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. In other words, he's gone. He's going to be gone for a while. No accountability. So what I'm promising is is, uh, finery, fragrance, fulfillment. It's all free. And she's actually even saying, I've got some food. Verse 14, I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I've paid my vows. You may not know this, but a peace offering was a sacrificial animal that you took. Part of it would be consumed as an offering to God. Part of it would go to the priest as a means of sustaining him. And the rest of it would go home for a festive meal. So when she says, I've offered peace offerings, you had a meal of peace after that offering to celebrate the goodness of God that you had just worshipped with. So she says, I've got food, food and finery, fragrance, fulfillment, all free, no cost, no consequence, an appeal. Aggressive, verse 10, comes to meet him. Verse 13, seizes and kisses him. Verse 15, seeks your presence earnestly. Verse 21, with her many persuasions, she does what? She entices him. How many persuasions? Many. Look at verse 10. She is cunning of heart. The word cunning is a word for an animal that's predatory. It's a hunting word. Cunning has the idea of someone who is purposefully predatory. Look at chapter 6, verse 26. On account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread and an adulteress hunts for the precious life. Do you see the word hunt? All right. Here's a fact. Temptation is predatory. Immorality is predatory. 
You don't have to be looking for it. Listen to me. It is looking for you. The enticement is a lure that is proactive and predatory. It's aggressively seeking you. You do not have to be looking for it. When I was a senior pastor in Birmingham, I, uh, an 80-year-old grandmother who had been widowed for a second time, she came to live with Karen and my family, our family in Birmingham through the latter stages of her life. And at that time, at 80, she could still drive. We lived south of Birmingham. She got in her car one day and headed to the Galleria Mall in Birmingham. And it was a Monday. And I remember because I was weed whacking and doing yard work when she came home from the mall. She came around the front of the house. She greeted me. I greeted her. How was your time at the mall? How are you doing? Hey, what are you doing today? She said to me. And then on her way into the house, almost as a by the way, she said to me, oh, by the way. Laying by my car in the parking lot was this DVD called The Diamond Collection. I don't know. Maybe it's a jewelry salesman's promo material. She handed it to me. Oh. I set it on the front of steps of the house. She went in. I weed whacked. At the end of weed whacking, I carried that, picked it up off the front steps, carried it upstairs to where our part of the house was, and laid it on top of my AV cabinet. Forgot about it. Till a week later, Monday, my day off, I went upstairs to do my devotions, watch Sports Center. <laughs> I'm teasing, sort of. <laughs> I was turning on the audiovisual equipment. I saw the diamond collection sitting on the top. Oh, wonder what this is. Anybody want to hazard a guess what the diamond collection? I'll tell you what it wasn't. Jewelry promotions. It was hardcore pornography. Now listen, I'm not easily angered, but I was mad. You know why? That's not fair. A senior pastor of a church who wants to be what God wants him to be is hand-delivered by his 80-year-old grandmother. Destructive, immoral images. No, she didn't know. No, please don't. She didn't buy it. She didn't. Like she was setting me. Yeah, it's really aggressive. God uses my grandmother. I don't mean that. What I'm saying to you is, and I remember taking it, you know, you can't push the button fast enough to eject it around the back of the house, ball peen hammer. I was mad. That's aggressive. And that's just one story of many stories I could tell you today to punctuate this point. People don't anticipate how aggressive temptation is. You don't have to be looking for it. It's looking for you. You've got to live like you're living in Baghdad. You put your armor on and you have your head up and your eyes open. Predatory is immorality. Predatory is temptation. It's aggressive. It's available. It lurks by every corner. How many, how many, how far do you have to go today to get in moral trouble? You just click a button. You can be trouble in a heartbeat. It lurks by every corner. You're not safe anywhere. And I'm not trying to create paranoia. I'm trying to create maturity in you to help you recognize, not because you're just constantly on over alert. You just are aware. And it is appealing. Now listen, it wouldn't be a temptation if it wasn't attractive. Somebody offered me some chocolate cake the other day. You know what? I really don't care about chocolate cake. It was easy to say no, but it, if it would have been the Krispy Kreme thing, I'd have been in trouble. Okay? Everything is not attractive, but if, when temptation is coming, it will be attractive. Is she lying? She's not lying. It's all temporary. It, it doesn't satisfy. It has a hook. It's destructive, but it's temporary satisfaction. You can never make a decision on temptation weighing it out in the moment. If you're starving for something, you got to stay out of harm's way. And if you are aggressively presented with an option, you can't go, you know, that looks really good. It always looks good. 
And good people who do bad things underestimate how good. Avoid it. Stay away from it. Recognize the potential of it. It is predatory. It offers temporary satisfaction. Don't make a decision based on a moment. Think about the long term. Are you anticipating? Here's the question to ask yourself. Are you anticipating or assuming? Assuming you're safe today? You're not safe anywhere. And are you blocking it or are you listening to its invitations? The decision issue must not be based on potential gratification, but predetermined conviction. The appeal is always powerful and compelling. Prepare for a powerful proposition. Aggressiveness is the operative ingredient. Temptation, we're observing, we're evaluating. That's what we're seeing. That's how it works. It's powerful. It's predatory. Next, why do good people do bad things? They overlook the obvious. They overlook the obvious. Here's the word I want to plant in your heart, blindness. They ignore the obvious. What's obvious? Well, what is obvious in this text is the woman's dress and her attire is obvious. Her attitude is obvious. Her dress, verse 10, she's dressed as a what? A harlot. What she's wearing or what she's not wearing is evidence of who she is and how she is. What she's not is 1 Timothy 2.9, a woman who adorns herself with proper clothing modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair, gold or pearls, or costly garments. The harlot of the Revelation is arrayed in purple and scarlet, as Revelation 17.4, decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. She's dressed like that kind of a woman would be dressed. Listen, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, I didn't know she was that kind of person. I didn't know he was that kind of guy. The attire is obvious. Her attitude is obvious. She's boisterous. She's rebellious. Verse 11. Listen, godly qualities, 1 Peter 3, 4, godly women are characterized by the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, not a boisterous, rebellious spirit. There's an attitude that she has. And thirdly, her actions were obvious. Verse 12, she's not at home. Where is a woman supposed to be in the dark part of the night? At home. She's not at home. Verse 13, what she does, seizes and kisses him. All of this should be obvious. Good people who do bad things seem to be blind to the obvious. Here's a fact. The morally immature tend to not see what others would clearly see. Enlist and engage objective observers. Learn to ask questions. Here's a good question. Anything, do you see anything or anyone that could potentially injure or compromise me? Engage and enlist objective observers. So my question is, are you seeing or overlooking? Didn't know he was that kind of guy. Let me just... uh, Well, let's do this next one first. Look at verse 14. We'll go back to it. Why do good people do bad things? They are disarmed by devotion. They're gullible. Verse 14, she said, I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I have paid my vows. What is she saying? I'm a religious girl. I'm a spiritual girl. Irrespective of her dress, attitude, and and actions, she is promoting herself as someone who is religious. Again, back to the word cunning, verse 10. She's cunning. That word means she's concealed in her heart. She's subtle. She's deceptive. 
to the sense in which she's dressed, obviously, but she's got an angle so that it's not so obvious to him. And then secondly, verse 13 says she's brazen. Do you see that? She sees him, kisses him, and with a brazen face, she says to him. You know what the word brazen means? Hard-faced. Literally, she's stone-faced. She can say it and act as if nothing is wrong. She has the ability to represent herself in a pious way and suggest doing things that you shouldn't do, go places you shouldn't go as if there's nothing wrong with it. And she pacifies her victim with an apparent piety. That's why people like me can get people like you in trouble because I'm up front, I look a particular way, I act a particular way. The perception is you can trust me. It's why youth pastors and people in ministry, and I'm not advocating for distrust and mistrust. I'm saying that people will parade themselves as trustworthy when in fact they may not be. You don't measure me by how I look or the words I say, but by the life I live. You cannot, this is a John MacArthur quote, so I'm going to give him credit. He said to me years ago, Harry, you cannot compartmentalize carnality. Carnality doesn't stay restricted in this one category. Carnality leaks. If you see someone careless with their tongue, tell jokes they shouldn't tell, go places or watch things they shouldn't watch, what you're witnessing is carnality. And if you see it there, you can rest assured it is elsewhere. Don't be deceived by apparent devotion. She's promoting herself as someone he could trust, when in fact, not at all. So the issue there is gullibleness is the word I wrote. The operative ingredient is you're just gullible. I didn't know he was that kind of guy. I didn't know he was that kind of girl. He promoted himself in a particular way. Don't be pacified by apparent piety. Apparent piety paves the way for impurity. Say that fast. Apparent piety paves the way to impurity. It appeases the conscience. It disarms the victim. Surely this can't be wrong if this religious person is promoting it and willing to do it. Here's a quote. Beware of any voice, though from the most revered quarter, that manifestly encourages carnal indulgence. Are you buying what they're selling or are you evaluating? Next. Verse 5, verse 15, and verse 21. Here's an observation. Temptation. Here's what it plays on. Your ego. Good people who do bad things are exposed by their ego. They feel weak. They feel small. And the temptation inflates their sense of identity and worth. Notice verse 5. The adulteress, the foreigner who flatters with her words. Notice what it says in verse 15. Therefore, I have come out to meet you to seek your presence earnestly, and I have found you. Why do you think it's written that way? What is she saying? I'm looking for you. You're special. The word flattery is a Hebrew word which means smooth of speech, but it also means to inflate to build up. Flattery is manipulation. It tells somebody what they want to hear, listen to this, to get what that person wants. Flattery is not sincere. Flattery is telling someone what they want to hear so you can get what you want. It's to set someone up, in this case, so you can take them down. Listen, this is the the graphic images that are often promoted as means of gratification have housed in them the idea that I want you. You're special. It's a seduction. It's a misrepresentation. It's the promise that says you're somebody. A gospel singer a few years ago who fell victim to immorality with someone on her worship team 
was asked what happened, and she gave testimony to what happened. She said, I was struggling in my marriage. I was a beat-down, depressed woman, hungry for any attention or satisfaction. Flattery is what appeals to a beat-down ego, a sense of worth. That's what I mean by ego. Listen, find significance in the Savior. Value yourself or define yourself based on God's view of you, not someone else's view of you. Find significance in legitimate ways. Find significance in the Savior. Strengthen your self-worth in the Savior. Find value in valid ways. Listen, life will bruise you up. There will be circumstances where you do not perform and someone will expose the fact that you haven't performed. Every lesson I teach, every sermon I teach is not a winner. Some of them are, I laid an egg. If you assess yourself based on your performance, inevitably your value will be devalued. Listen, I'll give you an illustration. If John MacArthur says Harry Walls can preach, I'm really not that concerned about what you may think. Do you see what I'm saying by that? It's not that you don't matter. It's just his assessment matters more. Okay, now apply that to life. If God says you're valuable, does it really matter what somebody else thinks? If God says your value is established by creation and redemption, if God says you're not homely but beautiful and and valuable, then it shouldn't matter so much what someone else thinks. But good people who do bad things, this is how temptation works. It plays on that. Be alert for that. When your heart is hurting, get help for your hurting heart. Find identity where it really is. And if you need counsel and encouragement from the word of God and the people of God, get it. When life happens and you go through difficult things, you can become vulnerable. Get help for your hurting heart and find healing for those hurts. Because the enemy will leverage those hurts and entice you to find satisfaction where you cannot find it. Next, we're coming to the end. So the word there I have is weakness. Look for weakness or a sense of smallness. Here's what else temptation plays on, impulsiveness. I want you to notice the key word beginning in verse 22. Suddenly, he follows her. Suddenly, do you see that? The Hebrew word is in the blink of an eye. The idea is he's, he's impulsive. He makes his decision in a moment. Now, this is in the James chain. This is desire, drawing him out, deception, the enticement, then a decision. This is the point of decision, suddenly. This is the decision to disobey, the decision to take the illegitimate path to satisfy a legitimate need. Verse 22, suddenly he follows her. Why do good people do bad things? They're inclined to be impulsive. They're impulsive, not restrained. They have a habit of giving in. The morally immature don't dominate desires, but suddenly give in to them. Listen, if you're going to overcome temptation, if you're going to triumph, you're going to have to learn to say no when you can say yes. In the biblical words, you buffet your body. You see this in verse 25. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. Don't let it happen. Discipline yourself. Listen, self-discipline is a great great asset to employ when you're dealing with the the appetites of your flesh. You may or may not know this, but the desire to eat trumps the desire for other passions. It sits at the very top of the food chain of longings that you may have to satisfy. It trumps every other passion when it comes to the intensity and the dominance. So here's a bit of advice. Learn to say no to your appetite to eat when you can say yes. 
When you can have an extra helping, say no to the extra helping, not because you can't have it, because you're reminding your body that you have the discipline to say no when you can say yes. Cultivate self-discipline. If you can learn to dominate and buffet your body, you can make it your slave. So here's the encouragement. Develop discipline. Dominate your desires. You may even try fasting as a means to exercising self-control. Not only set us, setting aside a time for seeking the seeking of the Lord, but also to teach your body the priorities that really matter. All right, one final thing as we come to the close here. Why do good people do bad things? Not only because of impulsiveness, but they have the assurance that there is no justice. They will not get caught. This is 19 and 20. For the man is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He's taken a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. In other words, their accountability is not home, won't be home for a long time. Therefore, there are no consequences. We will not get caught. 74% of the people who fumble the ball morally say that they would, or 74% rather say that they would fumble the ball immorally if they knew they wouldn't get caught. Getting caught is an obstacle. People who fumble the ball morally, the temptation takes on strength because the suggestion is, I won't get caught. He does not know that it will cost him his life. Doesn't know that he'll get caught. Doesn't know that it has high, high cost. So maybe I could close this way today, and I know we're just a minute or two behind. If you want to triumph over temptation, you have to consider the cost. And you have to cultivate the discipline which says, when I can, I'm choosing not to, so that when I need to, I can choose the right thing. Triumph over temptation is what real Christians do, not because they're not tempted, but they deal with temptation in a way that honors the Lord and produces a victory that doesn't take their life, their ministry, their marriage, their opportunity. Let's be faithful. Someone died so we could be. Let's be faithful to live in a way that honors him. Can you say amen to that? Father, thank you for the time today. This is a Memorial Day weekend, and housed in this vivid illustration is the failure of a young man. Help us to learn from him. Help us to not presume that we couldn't be him. Lord, help us to observe the ways and the wiles of temptation, how it comes, what we're inclined to do or not do, to the end that we might be found faithful, that we might be triumphant, in ways that garner your praise and honor, in ways that invite your blessing and goodness toward us. Lord, make us victorious in the ways that matter the most. Protect us and use us. In Jesus' name, amen.